Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics, coming up. After last-minute negotiations, members of Parliament pass the government's $9 billion student aid package. In a crisis, our goal should be, our priority should be, how do we help the peop- most people uh, as quickly as possible and ensure that no one falls through the cracks? That should be our priority, not the inverse, which is uh, the Liberal and Conservative frame, which is worrying about people not getting, or t- people getting too much help, uh, worrying about people who don't deserve the help, Uh, That is the wrong approach in a pandemic. That is the wrong approach in a crisis to take. The Prime Minister says he's open to the idea of a voluntary coronavirus tracking app, as long as privacy is respected. As we move forward on taking decisions, we're going to keep in mind that Canadians put a very high value on their privacy, on their data security. And Derek Sloan rejects a demand from the Conservative Party's Ontario caucus to apologize for comments he made about Canada's chief medical officer of health. So I think he's actually made things worse by coming out a long statement justifying himself and not apologizing. It's Thursday, April 30th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by John Iveson, columnist in the National Post. John, thank you for being with us. Morning, Mark. So the federal government has passed its student aid package after some last-minute negotiations. Uh, This is obviously one piece of a giant puzzle of support that's going out to Canadians. What will this mean, and, uh, and what did it take to get it across the finish line? Well, I think it was actually a good day for Parliament. Um, the original proposal didn't satisfy the NDP, who were arguing that the um, $1,750 per month for, for students with dependents or disabilities was unfair because it was obviously less than the emergency benefit, which is $2,000 a month. So they demanded as a price for their support that that, that amount be $2,000, and the, the bill was duly amended. The Conservatives were worried about... Uh, disincentives to work, that there wasn't enough in the bill to suggest that uh, it was expected that students go out and at least look for work, even if clearly in the early stages there are not many jobs. So there was an element of um, incentivization. The wording was changed in the bill. Um, There was an attestation added that suggests you have to say, I'm at least searching for work and I've been unable to find it. So this is this is the the, the moral hazard argument that uh, that people will just take the money and, and sit in their couches rather than go out and look for work. You know th- there are job vacancies. It looks like we're going to have labour shortages in the agricultural sector and the food processing sector, uh, which could possibly lead to food shortages. So I think that um, that there's still more work needs to be done trying to match up a, a pool of labour and students with those vacancies. The government is, is talking about 76,000 new jobs that in sectors that might need a helping hand. There's no more information on that or on how you would match up those uh, those jobs with the vacancies. But I think you know that there needs to be a little bit more imagination in the regulations than in the legislation to ensure that people actually try and get out there and, and look for jobs and fill gaps that the country desperately needs filled. But you're saying that uh, the result of this is actually Parliament was working effectively, uh, and and that was yes, I, that was part of the yeah, theme the other day when they had the virtual sitting as well, right? That there was uh, more decorum than normal. That uh, that this was a, kind of a different chapter compared to what we're used to. Yeah, I think so. I mean, people think that the proceedings in the House are often unsatisfying, boring. You know, they're rarely exhilarating, but they are essential. I mean, th- this shows that 
that the, it's a better bill that came out of the House than went into it. You know, I talk to people who have worked in Parliament, and they say that, you know, you, you, you sit watching question period and a question is asked and no answer is at the end of it. But even asking the question is a motivator for change. And talking to Gary Keller, for example, who was chief of staff to John Baird, he said, if the opposition is having a field day during question period, a good minister will come back to the office and say, I got killed in there today. Is it true what they said? If, it, if it's not, give me something to push back with. If it's true, let's fix it. So I think that the Parliament is a little bit more nuanced than what we might see in our TV screens. And yesterday we saw some of that nuance in action. Meanwhile, the federal Conservatives are uh, uh, targeting August now as the date when they will choose their new leader. Uh, this comes after a meeting of their leadership committee yesterday. Um, tell me what you think about that. This, uh, this is obviously later than originally planned. They were talking about uh, originally having a new leader in place by the end of June. Now it's going to be the end of August. Uh, but uh, it does mean the leadership race is back on. Right, and, and, and clearly everything's going to be virtual. I don't think we're going to see uh, a leadership convention. But, you know, it makes sense. I think when um, when the leadership candidates were still campaigning, just as COVID hit, it was really discordant to hear some of the things they were saying. Uh, it, it did not sound very sensitive when people were worried about their jobs and their lives to, to, to see these candidates competing for the for the leadership job. I think we're we're through that and, and increasingly we're gonna see the, the candidates re emerging with their messages. It does not strike me as, as terribly insensitive to to suggest that you can hold uh, a, a leadership vote how many months from now? Four months from now? Yeah. Um, Derek Sloan, uh, who is a leadership candidate, is refusing to apologize for remarks that he's made about Canada's top public health official, Dr. Theresa Tam, even though some members of the Conservative caucus in a meeting uh, this week uh, discussed it and and said that he should apologize. Uh, he's holding fast to uh, his previous statement and uh, is, is not backing down on this. Uh, uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think he's just compounded the agony. He came out and said, I did not and I'm not questioning Dr. Tam's loyalty to Canada, when clearly he did. I mean, the, the statement he made suggested, asked the question whether she works for China or Canada. kind of questions are loyalty. So I think he's actually made things worse by coming out a long statement justifying himself and not apologising. I mean, I think you either completely stick to your guns and damn the torpedoes or you recant and, and apologise. And he has done neither. Um, I don't suspect it goes terribly far after this. The the caucus was demanding an apology. You know, they got the way it works is I think they need twenty percent of the caucus to to um, raise the raise the motion. It then goes to a for his membership to be reviewed. It then requires a majority to expel him through a secret ballot. I don't see the majority of Conservative MPs wanting to kick him out right now, particularly given the fact that he's running to lead the party that of which they're a member, that would seem to be a little bit uh, out of kilter. So I think that that might be the end of it. But but clearly, he is in bad order with, with people outside the Conservative movement, and now with, with uh, many of his colleagues too. All right. Finally, the Prime Minister was asked yesterday about the use of technology, apps that uh, that could trace who you're in contact with and whether or not 
it's appropriate to deploy those as a way of containing the spread of the coronavirus. Some people have raised significant privacy concerns about that, and and obviously uh, that's a it's a classic debate, isn't it, about whether or not. Uh, this justifies the the uh, infringement on our privacy of of an app that would know where we've been and who we've been in contact with. Yeah, I mean, this has got quite a good track record in in, in uh, combating COVID in countries like uh, South Korea and Singapore. Um, South Korea amended its laws to let health health officials track location data from from cell phones. Um, car navigation systems, credit card systems, etc., to keep a tabs on citizens. We are not South Korea, though, and I think that uh, we're much more like Australia, where they brought in uh, a voluntary coronavirus tracking app. And I think anything that was done in Canada would have to be voluntary. That seemed to be what Trudeau was suggesting as well. He was, he was treading a very fine line, and he's obviously aware that people get very nervous when you suggest that... Uh, that it be mandated that somehow you'll be you'll be tracked around via your cell phone. All right, John. I appreciate your insights on all these topics today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. And the good news is that Canadians are stepping up to keep each other safe. In fact, in many parts of the country, the curve has flattened. So we have to keep it up. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Bob Hepburn argues Justin Trudeau deserves credit for his handling of an unprecedented crisis. Hepburn writes, The Prime Minister has been reassuring and calm in the midst of the global crisis, and he has overseen the coordination of a massive federal relief effort in which billions of dollars in aid were sent out the door quickly to millions of affected Canadians. Recent polls suggest more than 70% of Canadians like how he has been handling the crisis. Those numbers won't likely remain that high, but for now, they're a sign most Canadians have confidence in the Prime Minister. In the Globe and Mail, Robin Urbach argues, lessons are learned from every pandemic, and every time, we forget them. Urbach writes, when all of this is finally over, there will be a post-mortem effort on a scale this country has probably never seen. Each final report will culminate with a list of critical recommendations, and those recommendations will all sound familiar, recycled from post-mortem reports on our response to SARS nearly two decades ago. The problem is not that we won't know what to do after COVID-19. The problem is shifting perceptions and of the collective tendency to forget. At Policy Options, Charlene Gale argues First Nations need to play a role in post-COVID recovery. Gale writes... It is essential that job creation and economic development programs work for all Canadians, including Indigenous peoples. Going forward, we need to ensure that Indigenous communities are fully included in the major resource projects that cross our territories. And we need First Nations to be part of the solution and help move good developments along. Past experience has made Indigenous peoples wary of industries and government's intentions. After COVID-19, we need to play a constructive role in rebuilding the economy for everyone's benefit. In the Hamilton Spectator, Gwyn Dyer argues during the coronavirus pandemic, every country gets the government it deserves. Dyer writes, The United States and the United Kingdom are taking worse losses from the coronavirus than anywhere else. These are two countries that dominated the world one after the other for most of the past two centuries. Might that have made them a bit arrogant? 
Unable to see the experience of other countries as relevant to their own situation? What Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, and their respective countries both have in abundance is an arrogant exceptionalism that is leading them increasingly into grave errors. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Parliamentary Budget Officer will release a new report this morning, and as CPAC's Martin Stringer tells us, it's an economic analysis that a lot of people will be watching for in these troubled economic times. Mark, this report being released by the Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux is an update to a scenario analysis that his office did about a month ago. Then it looked at the massive negative impact on the Canadian economy of two events, the impact of distancing measures and the partial shutdown of the Canadian economy due to COVID-19, And the second event was the plunge in world oil prices due to the Saudis and Russians flooding the international petroleum market with cheap oil. But things have changed after about a month. The PBO's initial assessment was based on social distancing and the shutdown of the economy at least until August. But we're now seeing a movement in certain provinces to a gradual reopening of the economy. And there has now been on the oil market an agreement internationally to limit world production to try to enhance oil prices. So, Mark, it'll be interesting to see what the PBO has in terms of its revised forecast. A month ago, the PBO predicted that Canada's GDP, or gross domestic product, would decline by 2.5% in the first quarter of this year, and then by a whopping 25% in the second quarter. So, we'll see if their latest number crunching is looking any more optimistic or still pretty gloomy for the future. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister is expected to hold his daily news conference on the coronavirus crisis. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, April the 30th. Tune in to CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day for continuing coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.